Good morning. It is good to be in God's house this morning and uh, to worship our great God and Savior. I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to eventually get to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Um, and the question of, so who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Uh, just by a brief way of introduction, I would uh, say that I um, definitely relate to uh, Brother Dwight Singer's introduction of uh, two weeks ago when he presented an excellent challenge from uh, the life of Abraham, but he started by saying that he was comfortable in his element as a teacher, a professor in the classroom, less so behind the whole pulpit in preaching. And I would echo that sentiment in my own heart this morning as uh, I, with some level of uh, uh, anxiety, but with great excitement and expectation, am privileged to bring God's Word to you this morning. I'm reminded that God uses the weakness of His servants to bless the power of His Word. So with that prayer this morning, I'd like us to consider together the Mount of Transfiguration and the experience that Peter, James, and John had there in Luke chapter 9. By the way, it's on, you'll find that on page 867 of the uh, Pew Bible. Uh, and again, in consideration of this question, so who really is Jesus? You know, few questions have received as much attention down through the ages. Been weighed in by more pundits and scholars than this question. Uh, just Google sometime, who is Jesus? You'll be blown away at the number of responses. Uh, there's an interesting series of YouTube, YouTube videos uh, from the streets of London, the streets of New York, where different individuals went in and just asked this question. All kinds of answers. For most of us this morning, I trust, that are here and have professed faith in Jesus Christ, we have seen from His Word who He is. We have some level of confidence in the answer to the question, who is Jesus? In fact, we've staked our lives, our eternal lives on it, haven't we? Perhaps there's someone here who is still wrestling with the answer to that question. If that's you this morning, I would ask you sincerely, listen to the words of Luke's gospel and the answer that God's word gives to that question this morning. If you're here this morning as a believer, perhaps a new believer, or someone who's walked with the Lord for decades, may God give you a deeper, richer understanding this morning. And as a result, a desire for more intimacy with Jesus, the one we'll look at this morning. Let's begin by asking God's blessing once again on the proclamation of his word. Father, as we look into this account this morning and the question of the ages, who is Jesus? Would you please, by your spirit, help us to see clearly the proclamation of who Jesus is and why it matters. Help us to see Jesus as your Son, the Chosen One. Lord, please bless now as we look into this, your Word. May Jesus be preeminent. We pray it in his name. Amen. With your finger in Luke 9, I'll say we will get to this passage 
shortly. But I want to get there by way of first considering the question of Jesus' day, and that is, who is this Jesus? No less than seven times prior to this account in Luke 9, we find individuals or groups essentially asking the question, who is this Jesus? Let's survey them quickly. You find first in Luke chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 859 in the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as, as was his custom, that is Jesus, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolls the scroll, finds the place, and reads the prophecy from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus says, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendants, and sat down. The eyes of all were fixed on him. And he says to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Unbelievable statement that Jesus makes with regard to this messianic prophecy and in fact the account in verse 22 says that those there asked the question is this not Joseph's son? In other words who is this Jesus? How can he make such a claim? Moving on quickly to Luke chapter 5 and you'll find in verses 17 and following and I won't read the whole account I'll just summarize it some friends of a paralyzed man bring him to Jesus in Luke at, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And we find these friends of the paralyzed man persevering to get this man to Jesus. Jesus will eventually heal him, but before he does, in response to their faith, he makes this statement in chapter 5 and You'll notice in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? You see the question again, who is this Jesus? We go on to Luke chapter 7. And the question of Jesus' identity is questioned even by John the Baptist. As we saw Wednesday night in our prayer meeting time, in Luke chapter 7, the disciples of John are sent by John to Jesus, and they basically they have the following question, as it's recorded in verse 19, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Who is this Jesus? We go on still in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following. Simon a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner a host of others there, and at this event, a sinful woman comes in, and in an act of love for Jesus, she washes his feet with her hair, then anoints him with a flask of alabaster, to which Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. And again, the response, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? Going on to Luke chapter 8 and verses 22 through 25, the account of Jesus calming the storm. Again, I won't read the passage, but you're familiar with it. Jesus speaks 
to the wind and the waves, and they calm, to which the disciples, in verse 25, were afraid, they marvel, say to one another, who then is this? Who is this Jesus? We go on, go through chapter 8 and 9, and the word about Jesus' mighty acts and his teaching spread more and more till we come to chapter 9 and verses 7 through 9, and word gets to Herod. And he's perplexed at what he hears of all that's happening. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others that this one of the prophets from old had risen. Herod said, verse 9, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And he sought to see him. And then finally, perhaps the most significant inquiry into Jesus' identity before our text in chapter 9 in the Mount of Transfiguration is found in Jesus' own address to his disciples in chapter 9 and verse 18 and following. It happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. He asked them two questions. Who do the crowds say that I am? They answer, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets of old is risen. He then says to them, Jesus says to them, but who do you say I am? Peter answers, the Christ of God. His magnificent messianic declaration, as limited in his understanding as it was, for it will later become clear that Peter still had a Messiah of his own making, if you will, one that didn't fit the categories of his expectation. So in Jesus' day, the recurring question again and again in Luke's gospel, who is this Jesus? Well, it hasn't changed through the annals of history, has it? And Recurring question of our day, of the ages, is who is Jesus? Consider the following quotes by famous or well-known individuals of the past century. Theologian John Lennon, when asked about Christ and Christianity, say Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Or former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev of Jesus said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Or perhaps Oprah Winfrey, who said, there couldn't possibly be just one way. When a lady in the audience said, what about Jesus? She responded, what about Jesus? Does God care more about your heart, or does he care about whether you call his son Jesus? And on and on and on, individuals have pondered the question of who is this Jesus. I found it interesting that British author and historian H.G. Wells wrote the following. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is either the most dominant figure he is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And on and on. You'll like this one, and I'll, I'll rather telling. 
Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Seeking the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously sell himself in prayer by secret to seek him. Quote from the first Harvard University student handbook, 1636. So, in Jesus' day throughout history, the question, who is this Jesus? Direct your attention now to the answers that I would like to draw from God's Word this morning in Luke's account of the Transfiguration. In the immediate context, excuse me, I'm going to shed this jacket. It is a bit warm up here. In Luke's account of the Transfiguration, Peter has just made his momentous declaration, his confession of Christ as Messiah. The Lord responds by telling about Peter and others about his own sacrificial death that was about to take place. And as Jesus is now about to embark on his journey to Jerusalem and eventually to the cross, Luke, as well as Matthew and Mark, provide the account of the transfiguration. This mountaintop experience, an account that speaks volumes to the question, who is Jesus? Pick up with me and follow along as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and following. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what? they had seen. We find in the text before us this morning, and I'll ask you to consider with me, answers from a mountaintop experience to the question of the identity and the essence of Jesus. We see this first in verses 28 and 29 in terms of Jesus' conduct and his changed countenance. What's the first thing we learn about Jesus in this account? He took with him Peter and James and John, went up to a mount, on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, well, at one level, the mention of prayer is simply considered background information. It provides for us an initial and important glimpse into the question at hand. You see, for the first thing we learn about Jesus from the text is that his life was marked by prayer. 
Christ's life and ministry were characterized by, empowered through intimate communion with his Father. The highest expression of trust, submission, and union. His priority to prayer is highlighted not only here, but elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus prays, something happens. We won't take the time to turn back there, but you'll recall with me in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is praying at the very time that the Spirit comes upon him at his baptism and the voice from heaven proclaims, you are my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. In Luke chapter 6, prior to his selection of the 12 disciples, Jesus prays all night. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, as the disciples come upon Jesus and he asks the question with regard to his own identity, Jesus had been praying. Again and again, we see Jesus give priority to prayer. It was the guiding element in the course of his life and ministry. He was never too busy to pray. And while we're not specifically told the focus or the topic of his prayer here in Luke chapter 9, I want to suggest to you that based on the, the, the context, that perhaps it's for the disciples' benefit that Jesus was praying. You see, the disciples' world was about to be turned on its head as they were about to have their expectations shattered. Jesus prays for them, and they're given a glimpse of what's to come through this experience on the mountain. In addition, perhaps in response to this prayer, Jesus himself is encouraged, as we'll see later in the passage. And while this morning's message is not primarily about prayer, it's worth noting the focus that Jesus gives to prayer. And that when Jesus prays, in fact, more broadly in Scripture, when individuals, when men and women of God pray, significant things happen not only as a response to that prayer, but at the very time they're praying. We won't take time to turn there, but I just, just for reference, note with me Daniel chapter 9 and the wonderful vision of the 70 weeks that Daniel's giving, given there. He was praying at the precise time he's given that vision. Or in Job 42, when Job had lost everything and it's then wonderfully restored by God, Job is praying at the very time that restoration takes place. See, things happen not only in response to prayer, but when prayer takes place. And just by way of application, I, again, I don't want to take the focus off of Jesus and our question at hand, but I can't help but wonder in the text, as I, for our own lives, do we give the priority to prayer that this text in Jesus' life indicates is warranted? Or to, in the words of Corey Ten Boone, when addressing the matter of prayer, she asked the question, is prayer your spiritual steering wheel or your spare tire? It was certainly the guiding force in Jesus' life. And again, I would encourage us this morning in our own as well. Not only is Jesus' life, his conduct, indicative of his life of prayer, we find, secondly, in these opening verses of our text on the Mount of the Transfiguration, his changed countenance. Notice with me again in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered, his clothing became dazzling white. Christ's glory spectacularly breaks through the veil 
of his earthly tabernacle here. We see here at the very outset the preeminence of Christ revealed through his changed countenance. A divine confirmation, a transformation. Matthew and Mark's gospel use the word metamorphosis. An illumination of Jesus' glory, dazzling white. Literally bright as a flash of lightning. To which I can't help but ask, any of you out Tuesday night when there was some spectacular lightning? Debbie was down in the basement, which is where I should have been. I went up and I stood in our back sunroom and I saw two bolts of lightning strike and a massive tree come down across Old Lancaster Pike. Unbelievable. The, the, the brightness. And here in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus, his countenance, his clothing, is bright as lightning. The point of these descriptions is that Jesus was physically transformed into a radiant figure whose brilliance extended to his clothes. The radiant illumination of Jesus' face reminiscent of Moses coming down from the mount in Exodus 34. Although a clear and distinguishing feature is Moses' radiance or glory came from out upon him, Jesus' was from within. One can't help but notice the parallel here to the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 and the Christophany of, of Revelation 1, both of which highlight the transcendence of God. You see, Peter, James, and John are privy to a partial unveiling of the eternal glory that was masked or veiled through the incarnation. It is the glory that Jesus shared with the Father since eternity past. It would appear based on the, what follows in the Mount of Transfiguration account, as well as elsewhere in Scripture, Peter, James, and John are given a spectacular glimpse of the reality that Jesus is the transcendent Son of God. It's also important to note from our context, they're given a glimpse of the yet future kingdom or the glory of Christ that will be evident at, to all at his coming, which is a partial fulfillment of Jesus' statement earlier in chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, where Jesus, speaking of the Son of Man's return, he says, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. So we begin to see an answer to the question of who is this Jesus based on his Jesus' conduct, and Jesus' changed countenance. Secondly, we find significantly in the passage before us this morning, Jesus' companions and their conversation. Notice with me again verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, that is with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus' illustrious companions, Moses and Elijah, what some have called two super-terrestrials. Now it's been said, you're known by the company you keep. Well, this is pretty spectacular company. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Moses and Abraham? Abraham and Isaiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, consider with me briefly the caliber of these two individuals and their place within Judaism. 
Both had previously conversed with God on mountaintops. Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. Both had been shown aspects of God's glory. Both were great wonder workers of the Old Testament. Both had remarkable departures from earth. Moses, you'll recall, buried by God on Mount Nebo, never to see the promised land until here on the Mount of Transfiguration, some 6,000 years later, Elijah taken up by God in a a fiery chariot in 2 Kings 2. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy. Elijah was the restorer. Within Judaism, both were expected to return in conjunction with the end of the age. So these are two stellar individuals who are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. As to what they represent, different suggestions have been made. Perhaps the most common is that Moses and Elijah are representative of the law and the prophets, of which Jesus is the fulfillment of the totality thereof. And while that's true, I think perhaps the best suggestion as to what they signify It's offered by New Testament scholar Daryl Bach when he suggests that Moses, or he notes that Moses typifies the prophetic office that Jesus will occupy, allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15, while Elijah pictures the hope, the future hope of the eschaton or the coming kingdom. Thus, Moses looks back to the Exodus, Elijah looks forward to, to the fulfillment of the promise. should further be noted that, of course, both of these individuals give Old Testament witness to Jesus. While as important as the presence of these two Old Testament heroes of the faith is, even more striking, and perhaps most striking, is the topic of their conversation. The focus of their conversation, the conversation between Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, was Jesus' departure or exodus, which was about to be fulfilled at Jerusalem. You see, what they were talking about was the cross. What they were talking about was the cross, the content of their conversation. Luke's use of the word that's translated in the ESV as departure, the word is literally exodus, likely reference to Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension. The term is used Of course, with regard to the Old Testament, to Moses and the Exodus, perhaps here recalling that Old Testament event of salvation and reminding Peter, James, and John, as well as you and I this morning, that Jesus is doing something not just equivalent, but far greater than the Old Testament Exodus. You see, Jesus' glory... Who Jesus is, is ultimately wrapped up in the cross. It's ultimately wrapped up in the cross. Without the cross, there is no glory. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross and the resurrection to follow, Satan wins. So it's fitting that Jesus on the mount with Moses and Elijah would be talking about the cross. You recall the earlier in the gospel, not long after Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, Peter did, and, and Jesus goes on to say he's about to die. Peter's response, never, Lord. 
to which Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. There's no hint, no such hint of objection or reticence on the part of Moses and Elijah here. I can only imagine the conversation as they talk about Jesus' cross to come. Perhaps Jesus was telling them what he later said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as recorded in Luke 24, where Jesus would say to these two, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And as Luke tells us later in that chapter, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus would interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Perhaps Jesus and Moses and Elijah were discussing the magnitude, the infinite worth of the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make for the sins of the world. Pastor, I know, tells of a time when he was visiting a missionary friend in Sao Paulo, Brazil. They passed by a shop that sold religious relics. As the pastor looked in, he couldn't help but notice this big sign, simply read, cheap crosses. To which the pastor was struck to his heart with the thought, with the truth that there is no cheap cross. We learn from the scene of the transfiguration that Jesus' glory is inextricably linked to the cross. You cannot really know about Jesus. You cannot know Jesus apart from the cross. Don't miss that, please, this morning. As we move on in the text and the account of the transfiguration in verses 32 and 33, we read of Peter's encounter and the corresponding confusion. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three booths or tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. We find here in these verses, Peter, James, and John actually encountering, seeing Christ's glory. Notice it doesn't say they saw the glory of Elijah and Moses. They were simply standing there with Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw Christ's glory, his divine glory. I can't help but think of the words of Moses who on Mount Sinai's requests of God, show me your glory which God responds by hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock and God passes by and Moses just gets a glimpse of the afterglow, if you will, the backside of God's glory. Here on Mount Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John get a first-hand glimpse of God's glory in Christ. God's glory in Christ. Peter, some 35 years later, would write, we won't turn there, but in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, this same Peter would write, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his glory. Peter, James, and John had a 
spectacular encounter. But it was followed by confusion. Followed by confusion. As we read in the account of Peter's response. Peter's corresponding confusion. As evidenced by his impetuous, although seemingly sincere suggestion to build three booths. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And lest we be too hard on Peter here, let's remember the company Christ was in. Elijah, the spectacular Old Testament prophet who prayed and resulted in a three and a half year drought. Judgment upon Israel and the wicked king Ahab. He defeats the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth. Consider Moses the, the great deliverer, the great leader, the great lawgiver. So lest we be too hard on Peter here, put in context the two individuals. And even the context or the content of Peter's request. See, Peter, as many Bible or New Testament scholars suggest, is really suggesting a celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a building of booths for those, or tents, for those to participate. And this was a key festival in Judaism that looked back at God's deliverance, but it also looked forward. Lest we be too hard on Peter, let's consider our all too frequent tendency of our own hearts to place other individuals on par with Jesus. Do we find ourselves at times attracted to a, so much so to a particular author or individual that we're quoting that individual? We may not mean it, but at times seeming on par with Jesus. See, anyone or anything that detracts from Jesus alone even Moses and Elijah is ultimately misplaced or misguided attention. You know, we're in the midst of an international soccer tournament right now. I don't know, uh, the women's soccer tournament, I don't know if any of you have been following that. But, you know, a number of years ago, on the men's side, someone who was considered the, perhaps the greatest player of all time the Brazilian Pele. A devout Roman Catholic himself, somewhat accused of, uh, sometimes accused of self-promoting his own career, be that as it may, at one point he made the following statement. He says, wherever you go in the world, there are three icons. Jesus Christ, Pele, and Coca-Cola. To which I might add, not knowing what he said. See, there are no equals to Jesus. There are no equals to Jesus. We find as we move on in the text verses 34 and 35, the cloud and the divine declaration. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came over, came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
listen to him. This is, if you will, heaven's reaction, God's response. The cloud comes on the scene and overshadows them. The cloud, by way, you'll notice, is mentioned for emphasis three times in these two verses. And and an understandable human response to the cloud, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were terrified. A cloud, a vehicle of the divine glory signifying God's presence, the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. We won't take the time to, to... Uh, But uh, there's a fascinating separate study just on the glory of God throughout the Old Testament that ultimately departs from the temple, departs from the nation as recorded in the book of Ezekiel. And Ichabod, the glory is departed. And it's absent for 600 years until it returns in the person. Of Jesus Christ. So John, John who was present here would later write, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the unique one, the unique Son, full of grace and truth. The glory of God in the cloud. And then we see the divine declaration. God speaks. Strikingly, this is the second and the last record in the gospel account of God himself speaking audibly. Both times. It's with regard to the identity of his son. The first at his baptism in Luke 3 the second here in Luke 9 at the Transfiguration. Here we find Christ's supremacy evident through this divine corrective to Peter and God's own declaration of Christ's true identity. God's Son. His chosen one. The one whose voice we are called to hearken to. Here, interestingly, we have heaven's answer, God's direct response to Herod's question of Luke 9, who is this Jesus? God's clear and unmitigated herald, this is my son my chosen one. See, just as at Jesus' baptism, the heavenly endorsement of Jesus as God's Son echoes the messianic texts of Psalm 2 and verse 7, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, both of which are brought together, by the way, in the passage that Pastor Tyler read this morning where in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, referring to Jesus, we read, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. See, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God declares the identity of Jesus as his son. God's Son, His chosen one. Interestingly, the only place in the entire New Testament that term is used to describe Jesus, that exact term is here in Luke chapter 9. We'll find a related term used in Luke chapter 24 on the lips of those who are mocking Jesus at His crucifixion, when they say he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The term chosen one is clearly drawn from messianic texts in Isaiah 42, 44, 49, where the servant of the Lord is the chosen one. Also connecting Jesus to the suffering Messiah of Isaiah chapter 53. You see, in the life of Jesus, chosenness is connected with suffering and his glory. Which, of course, the identity of Jesus here as God's chosen one, his son, explains the Luke's editorial comment that Peter did not know what he was saying. He did not know what he was saying. Jesus is not to be put on par with Moses and Elijah. And then, finally, I know time is getting on. If you notice with me, Jesus is incomparable in his rightful claim or prerogative, the declaration, listen to him, hear him, beckon his word, be as it were Mary at Jesus' feet, listen to him. Throughout Luke's gospel we see that the words of Jesus are to be heard and obeyed. Finally, we see in Luke's account here of the transfiguration in verses 36 and verse 36, what I call an evocative word picture and the provisional silence. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent. No one in those days told anything of what they had seen. The evocative word picture, Christ alone. What happened to Moses and Elijah? You see, the message from the Mount of Transfiguration is Christ alone. He's unique. He's the chosen one. He's God's son. He's greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. Do you know him that way this morning? And then notice the provisional, what I call the provisional or temporary silence. Luke is, tells us that they were silent in those days. Luke, I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John did, certainly did not remain silent, did they? The parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus actually instructed Peter, James, and John to not tell what they had seen or heard until after Jesus was raised from the dead. So what's the point? Applications for life and ministry. And I'm just going to list these for you. Well, not, and I'll give you this as content for home group later today, but I want us to note several points quickly of application from our text. First of all, we cannot speak of Christ and his glory apart from the exodus, that is his cross. We cannot speak of Christ and his glory apart from his cross. Secondly, we dare not put Jesus on par with other great Bible figures or we dare not elevate our favorite author or pastor to regal status. Christ alone deserves our devotion. We must acknowledge Jesus as the essence of the content of the Gospels and we must hear his voice. Listen. Listen to Jesus. I want to close with a quote 
called the indescribable Christ. It's from a Dr. S.M. Lockridge. Interestingly, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, who pastored for 40 years in San Diego, California, African-American pastor. Perhaps his best-known sermon is entitled, He's My King, to which he says the following, of Jesus. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest idea in philosophy. He's the fundamental truth of all theology. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the only one able to supply all our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty, the captain of the conquerors, the head of the heroes, the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers, the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the Lord of lords and king of kings. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. He reigns in righteousness. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Oh, how I wish I could adequately describe him to you but he's indescribable. Yes, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get your mind around him. You cannot live him. You can't live without him. He's always been. He always will be. I'm talking about he who has no predecessor, no successor. There's no one before him, nobody after him. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. We try to get prestige and honor and glory to ourselves, but the glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? Ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When you're through all with the forevers, amen. Oh, how I wish I could describe him to you. Let's pray as the musicians come forward for our final worship song this morning in Christ alone. Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us a glimpse of the person of Jesus, who he is, through this account in Luke and the Mount of Transfiguration. God, I pray that each and every one would leave here this morning with a deeper sense of who Christ is. And Lord, if there's any that are wrestling with the question of never seen Christ as your son, your chosen one, and seen him dying on the cross for their sin. God, I pray that this morning you'd speak to that heart and they would not leave here without trusting Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word and the power of it. May Jesus be preeminent. May we give him the devotion that he alone deserves. In Christ's name, amen.